Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. We are Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. Dude just getting hammered and completely embarrassing himself. Grabbed a leftover slice of Domino's pizza out of the fridge and drizzled Domino's Cinestick sauce on it. And that has been my breakfast. And anyone who travels knows you don't need money to travel. It's a bad excuse for travel. I could have no money to make it around the world. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. I'm Evan. And tonight we've got an exciting show for you with our friend Alex Boylan. Alex, many of you may know from the second season of The Amazing Race, he actually won that show and uh, has kind of reaped the benefits in a lot of way. He has gone on to have a pretty successful career producing, casting, and filming from L.A. to the world. So we are excited to get to chat with Alex about what's going on, including his new show, Epic Villas, which is on Amazon Prime right now. Yeah, Alex won Amazing Race as a member of the Boston Boys, a.k.a. Team Steal Your Girl. And he went on to have a pretty enviable career in travel TV, producing, hosting, all kinds of good stuff. Well, it's just funny how how well Boston people seem to expatriate around the rest of the country, because I feel like you can't throw a dime anywhere in Colorado without hitting somebody from Boston. It's great. Boston people travel travel well, much to the disappointment of pretty much everybody else. I have a question for you, Evan. The chain Boston's Pizza, I'm pretty sure is a Canadian chain. Do people from Massachusetts actually like that place? I've never heard of it in my life. There's a bunch of them in Colorado. But except, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I My Canadian friend, when I was studying abroad, he was like, oh yeah, like I've had Boston pizza. I'm like, what? what's Boston? There is no, there is no Boston pizza. Like it's not a, it's not a thing. So anyone claiming to be making Boston pizza, especially in fucking Canada, is an absolute fraud. What if there were a Boston style pizza, what would it be? Honestly, I don't I don't know that there is. I don't think that there is such a thing as Boston pizza enough. It's not distinct enough to merit its own style. The 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 popular spots in Boston are Santarpio's, Regina, uh, Ernesto's. When you think of Boston pizza, those are the three places you think of. And to me, that's just a well-executed version of New York style. But I would love for someone to to comment or shoot us an email and prove me wrong or correct me if I'm mistaken because that's been my understanding for all these years. And Or to, or to enlighten me on Boston pizza, whatever this hoax is uh, in Canada because, or I don't know where these people get off being located, I'm looking it up right now, being uh, originating in Richmond, Canada and calling themselves Boston pizza whole thing seems like an absolute fraud to me. Yeah, I mean, my thought is if there were a Boston-style pizza, that that pizza would probably be loud, obnoxious, and not (laughs) very willing to compromise on anything relating to Boston sports teams. (laughs) I was just about to say, the the Boston pizza is just a giant picture of Tom Brady. It's, it's It's in the shape of Tom Brady's face. Speaking of that, Eben, what's the uh, what's the general opinion on the Buccaneers going to the Super Bowl? I think the general opinion is uh, people are rooting for Brady. And that shows you how loyal Boston fans are to Tom Brady. They're happy for him. And I think people are just pumped to see him and 
Gronk win another championship. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that old Saturday Night Live episode where they had uh, uh, two guys impersonating hardcore Chicago Bears fans and they're asking them all these questions about Mike Ditka. And they're like, okay, okay, Ditka versus God. And they're like, Ditka, Ditka. It's kind of like that. Yeah, New England, the Tom Brady legend has been slowly growing for 25 years. And at this point, I mean... The guy could do absolutely no wrong, no matter what team he plays for. Tom Brady could break into your house, steal your TV, and you'd be pumped about it. Tom Brady could storm the U.S. Capitol single-handedly, and the result would probably be New England just happily seceding from the Union. All right. Well, we're going to leave it at that, and we're going to get on here with another. We're going to get into an episode that has absolutely nothing to do with pizza or football. Nope, but it does have to do with another successful Boston expat. This is Alex Boylan. Oh my God, Tim. This is the best segue I've ever heard in my life. Another successful Boston expat indeed. Alex Boylan coming right up. All right, Alex Boylan, welcome to the show, man. It's good to kind of reciprocate the favor here. I know the first time we met a couple of years ago, you had me on, on a show you were doing. So now it's my turn. Oh, it's always good to see you, Tim, man. Thanks for having me on. And I do need to set that. I told you guys before the show started about this, but I, this isn't the backdrop of my house. This I'm at my mom's place right now. So that's why it looks like, you know, an 80-year-old backdrop. That's all right. We don't use video in our show anyway. So okay. you, 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 we'll, we'll put it in the show notes and describe it in intricate detail. Uh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. If you're listening, just imagine the Antiques Roadshow as a backdrop. <laughs> okay, cool. You have a new show out on Amazon Prime called Epic Villas. And... uh we're going to get into that in just a second, but I want to know first how you got into putting these shows together and how this career path came to life for you. Uh, well, so for me, I was an international business major, had nothing to do with this business whatsoever. And um, I, I, was a, I was working in Boston, market analyst, hated the job, like crunching numbers, quit that, went down to the Caribbean. Uh, to 10 bar and just kind of take a little break from it all. And that's, that is like 20 years ago, roughly. And that's when reality TV, like the first survivor came out and that's the first time I ever watched television. I was like, Oh dude, this is awesome. And anyway, after a year down, like just tending bar and coming back to the States, I got this like pop up my computer. It was like race around the world for a million dollars. And it was the amazing race and never been out yet. And so I had just come back from the Caribbean to my buddies at Clemson picked him up. He grew up where I grew up in Boston. So we kind of like drew, drove back here um, together and we just like put a casting tape together and got on the show, won the friggin' show. And like literally, like the whole time I was racing, uh, it was awesome to win and I'm competitive, but it's the first time I was exposed to this business. So I was just like, I couldn't stop talking to the producers. So I was like, wait a second, this is what you do for a job. So I knew day one on the amazing race, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I move out to LA I'm like, just won the amazing race. This is like the height of reality TV. There's like two survivors out, one amazing race. Like, and so it, it was a, the perfect time to win something. You just got so much press. Uh, so I'm in LA. I'm, I'm working on a show called Blind Date. I don't know if you guys remember that show. That was my first job casting. Uh, someone had said something to me like, oh, it's easy for you to travel. You won the amazing race. And I was like, you know, my backstory, my dad was a pastor. I didn't have any money growing up, right? But I did travel. And so, and anyone who travels knows you don't need money to travel. It's a bad excuse for travel, like saying you don't have money. And so I said, oh man, if I could have no money and make it around the world. And I remember saying that to someone and I was like, oh, that'd be a good idea for a show. And, you know, my, my buddy, Burton Roberts and I got together and just kind of worked this thing out. Unfortunately, CBS got behind us 
And, you know, launching that was like the first online interactive show for anyone's never heard of it. It's like one person has to make it around the world using the help of the online audience. So it's like this virtual online show that was happening um, all in real time. So we're shooting that day. It's being edited that night. It's posting online and no one's doing stuff. It was one of the first shows that was like posting stuff online. And that show took off. Right. And that, you know, we ended up doing three seasons with CBS and that turned like, you know, Bert and I, we're still, I'm, I'm probably like 28 at the time. And because no one knew how to do this, like kind of guerrilla warfare, shooting, editing, interactive type of media, we quickly became like the guys to do it. So right after around the world, Rachel Ray calls like, Hey, we want to do the exact same thing, but can you do it for this Alex? And that was probably the next evolution of my career was just doing online interactive types of shows. And a lot of those shows would repackage them for different networks. And- so when you're filming a show like The Amazing Race, how much of what you see on the screen is the organic way that things happened versus how much of it is kind of manipulated during editing? I think, and I think you'd probably get the first five seasons probably saying what I was saying. It was all real. Like there was nothing there. Of course, they're sensationalizing things and they're, you know, but not, nothing there didn't happen. So full disclosure, I've seen one season ever of Amazing Race, and it happened to be your season. That's funny. Uh, yeah, <laughs> on the recommendation of a friend who said, oh, you have to watch this show, and this is the best season. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And the storyline I'm most curious about from an editing perspective was you were shown to be flirting with another contestant who was married and on a team with her, I think it was her husband. Yeah, totally. And the way it was edited made it seem as though you were about to cuckold this guy at any minute and sneak off with his wife. Everything on, on screen is pretty much how I would say how it rolled out. But I'll say there's a lot more backstory to it. So first plane flight going to Rio de Janeiro. I'm buddies with Will. Like, Will seems like this nice guy. We're sitting here talking. And he's the husband of the, he's the, husband. He's the, husband I, of the girl. I do right? want to, like, I'll preface all this. I didn't, like, she told me they weren't married. Okay? So I didn't, wasn't going in trying to be, like, a homewrecker, right? <laughs> like, I, so, so I'm just kind of meeting them. But they're definitely together, right? She had told me, you know, Tara had said, like, oh, we're divorced, right? And so that's where I'm going in with that mentality. But that being said... Will and I actually became pretty good friends. And I think it was in these early episodes when there's so much going on, there wasn't a lot of time spent on screen showing that, but we truly were. And it was like, I knew more. I used to live down in Brazil. at the, And so like, I knew South America really well. He knew Southeast Asia. And not that it really helps you out these alliances that much in Amazing Race, but that was kind of the mentality. Uh, we'll have an alliance. I'll help you out if we hit South America. He'll help me out if we get to Southeast Asia. And then slowly his personality started coming out where he just like slowly would kind of like just be digging or kind of screwing um, like Chris and I over. It was like, it was little things. And I, and honestly, I'm like a pretty nice guy and would let like a lot go. And so I'm just kind of like going along and eventually, yeah, now Tara and I are kind of like flirting a little bit and this guy's just being like an ass. And so I just like, you know, I, I turned and was just like now, now it's like gloves are off, especially as time went on. It was like, yeah, I was like, listen, I was, you know, I'm, I'm 24 years, 23, 24 years old. So I'm just like, I'm going to smoke this dude and I'm going to take his check too. Like I definitely had that mentality. It was like, this is, this is the plan of attack. <laughs> yeah. Team, team steal your girl. And I accomplished the plan. So would you ever do the amazing race again? Uh, I would love to. 
Like, I mean, I think Chris and I would do it in a, I think, I don't know if there's anyone who would not do it again. I really don't know if anyone who's done the amazing race, if was asked to go back, would say no. Back in the day when it was pretty much like, it was just Big Brother, Survivor, and like Road Rules, Real World. Those are the people we all, and by the way, that crew back in the day, like everyone hung out at Saddle Ranch. Like everyone knew each other. Cause it was just a, such a small, all the rally shows were CBS, Survivor, and then a couple on MTV. It's like everyone kind of knew each other, but every other show wanted to do Amazing Race. Cause I think with Amazing Race, like no matter how it shakes out, I get to go travel the world. You know, I think you always have that. So it's, it's, uh, I would, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them. CBS, time to call me back. If you lose Amazing Race, you get to at least travel to two to three different continents and everyone watching at home is super jealous of the experience. Exactly. If you lose Survivor, you get to star for 25 days. Totally. You lose 30 pounds and the whole world gets to watch you hangry and miserable every week and think, fuck, I'm glad that's not me. So very, very different experiences. Yeah. 100%. So shortly after that, you moved out to LA and as a Boston guy, I mean, the culture is so different between Boston and LA. How is that? Is there any culture shock, personality clashes? I mean, the, the personalities of a Boston person, New England and living in LA are just so dramatically different. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I would say I'm always like a pretty watered down. Like, I mean, I love Boston. It's my, I'm here right now. My, like I, it's my roots, but I moved my junior high school. I was living in Brazil. My, I'd already lived in Germany by the time I was out of college. And so I, and I, I definitely had a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, global feel, I would say experience to me. And then college was in Florida. So it, I love LA. Like, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of Boston people actually out there. And you know, there's a bar called, there's a bar in Santa Monica called Sunny McLean's and it's literally a Boston bar. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Boston people everywhere though. Like you go anywhere in Denver, you go to a freaking Rockies game when the Red Sox are in town. It's a Red Sox game. Oh uh, yeah. Red Sox nation. We travel well. Yeah, we do. So for me, honestly, it was an easy transition. I loved every, cause I love LA. I mean, I still think it's one of the best cities in the world. So like I'm, I come from that cloth of, I love the, I, you know, grew up on the water. I, I love, we grew up, you know, in New England, you get kind of everything, just the weather's not that great. Right. But we get, you know, we have mountains, you, you're skiing, you're surfing, you're doing all these things. You're just, and now I'm in LA where it's like, I always say it's like a city on steroids, right? Like the mountains are awesome, right? The waves are better. So, so when you're filming, what walk us through your worst day ever on set? I would say, I mean, I don't ever have, I, I don't have many bad days, but I would probably go to, I mean, around the world for free is, is the most, probably the, something I'm the most proud of and the most, like, it's the most intense. I mean, you're literally going around the world sleeping in like strangers' homes every step of the way. Um, so I would probably, I mean, I could just give you some horrific stories. You're like, okay, this is, there's, there's parts of our planet that are tough, right? Like we're in, we're in Haiti doing this story on, um, there was an old expat and like the story of what ha has happened in Haiti. Haiti is already a pretty beaten down place. And then an earthquake hit. Right. And you know, now it, it, it the opposite of what should have happened happened in Haiti. Right. Most of the people who got affected by Port-au-Prince and that earthquake went out into the, you know, into the, into the, into the more rural areas. And as soon as all this humanitarian effort came back to Port-au-Prince, right. Now everyone came back with their families. So now you got this, like, it's an interesting dichotomy of what's happened there. But they, this, this old expat, like believed her mission was to save the babies of Haiti. And she lived in this, like, you know, 
is like in an area of just complete rubble and like chaos. She built this like mini kind of like fortress and we're in there living, like telling the story. And every morning, I'd say like three or four like infant babies are just left at the door. Wow. And like, we're having to, and how do you tell that story? And this like, this lady takes them in, right? And she just knew adoption around the world. And so like, there's just tons of babies inside there. Those are the stories that just like, I'd say it's, it's tough from like, the delicate like how do you tell this story it's harsh and how do you like bring that to the world and so i'd say like seeing humanity like i see seeing humanity at like the it's not humanity it's just seeing some of the toughest places on the planet become your toughest days because how do you like process it right like we did um and around the world too we got up to dadab um in somalia through the red cross got us in and that's the largest refugee camp in the world right and to start telling those stories of what has happened in somalia and the people that had to like oh i only brought my daughter i left my two sons on the side of the road because they couldn't i couldn't bring everyone through here you know what i mean it's just like this like there's a there's a there's a amazing sad places on the planet they're just going you know going through it so it's uh no so i don't want to say those are my worst days because i love telling like crazy stories and i love getting out there and, and being real and telling authentic stuff but those can be heavy i would imagine that those days are a lot telling those stories is a lot more rewarding than you know going to the french riviera and talking about hosting a show about you know the beaches you know it's a whole different that like those stories are the ones that are you know important and it's kind of cool to highlight them if i could both from a, like a, if it just worked in the nature of having a show that worked from all the different p- pieces that need to, I would never stop doing Around the World for Free. Like that's how much I love doing that show. And I remember them telling me, they were like, do you know the two places that do the best ratings wise in the world of travel? Las Vegas and Disney World. Okay, I was gonna say Bali. That, yeah. is, that, that, that is what's going to rate the most because the average viewer out there is going to be like, I want to watch something. We all want to watch something we relate to. And that's what they're going to rate to. So for me, my passion is like the farther I can get off the grid and the farther I can tell a story that no one's ever seen or touched before. Um, I love that stuff. And it's, it's funny how it's, it's sadly fewer and farther between in my career now between all like the glitz and the gloss. Well, you can't really afford to have bad days as a host either. You, you have to be on all the time. Don't you? You have to kind of be in this bubbly, enthusiastic mood. You get hyping everyone up about whatever it is you're talking about. I've always been like in awe of hosts, like how you have to maintain a level of energy about things. You might not even be that like, you can't just drag yourself onto set one day and be like, oh, what's up guys. My name's Alex. Uh, Welcome to another episode of I'm I'm so hungover. Yeah, you can't be hungover, and and and, and you don't want to be like. Sorry, a little hungover last night. Uh, you know, I, I gotta tell you, like, I feel extremely blessed in my career. You know what I mean? I feel honored. So, like, every day I get to be doing something in the world of travel shows. I am very grateful. I don't ever take it for granted. On a similar note, for Epic Villas, have you ever been? disappointed by any of the villas and you don't have to name which ones if any they're just like these incredible incredible um properties but you ever get there and one is just like eh you know it's like eh not worth the nine thousand dollars a night yeah and, and these are like a lot more than that right they're like 20 30 grand a night i mean these places are insane um you know what's interesting it's like uh first of all i guess the short answer is no right like like i, I i'm never like oh man like 
but I'm not to say like this, it's a very new series. Right. And, and um, there's lots of complications because it's international and COVID and all this stuff. But so one's out right now, we're kind of playing in the next like six episodes. Uh, but I, what I'll tell you what I love about it though, is that what we do it, that's, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm the host, but I'm really just the facilitator of the show, getting us in and out of segments. Right. What's fun is directing these people because everyone is showing you the villas. And I think this is what makes the show really cool. Those are like, that's, that's a, the, really the sales and marketing director for that villa. That's really the general manager for that villa. Like we find somebody who has a good personality and we work to take a regular person and bring them on camera. So like, it's kind of easy to shoot that something that beautiful and make it look beautiful. Right. It's not, that's not complicated. That the talent and the art of this show is that we're taking an average person, but who's intimately knows this property and working with them on camera. Are any of those people just awful actors? Just like can't remember lines. Can't like you, you we see everything within that spectrum. Um, and, and sometimes the most fun is, is the people that, you know, from the way they're looking at it, are, are they're struggling. We don't look at it like that. We're like, this is part of the process, right? It's which honestly is sometimes more fun from a production standpoint. Cause now we got work to do. We're just like, what am I supposed to say? You know, he's like, well, here's, here's some stuff. You know what I mean? You're on this beautiful cliff, whatever it is. And they'll be like, you know, start it. And I can't remember it. And like, you know, stage fright. There are, it's intimidating. There's cameras and there's people all behind you staring at them. So going back to that blind date show, I've always been curious about casting just in general on like how producers pick people to be on these things for a show like that. Do you literally just go around to bars in LA and just find hot chicks and you're like, Hey, you want to be on a reality show? Or is there some quality you're looking for? Is it literally just like, she's a 10, she's on it, For anyone who hasn't watched blind date. I mean, imagine it was, I mean, as a show, it's, it's an old show, but it was like two people would go out on a date and then there would be like bubbles about them where the writers would write what they were thinking. So they'd be talking and then you'd kind of see what they're thinking. Pretty like, it was, it was a very comical slapsticky type of show. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was MTV. The show was on. Um, so for me, it'd be this, and I can just tell you this show. And obviously this is very different than amazing race survivor. Everyone's very different. So, but this was like for blind date. If you were, if so for a female that you, they wanted like good, good looking hot. And like, and definitely like down to have some fun, right? Like a like a like a ten like percent sluttiness is like a good thing for you. Ninety ten split. Okay. Yeah, totally right. Like, and so that would be your qualifications, like hotness and like, oh yeah, she's gonna like hook up. The guy, it was like less about. I would say, like you know, they want decent guys, but like let's just say like fifty percent of like looks matters. So there's still hope for us, Tim. Only 50 percent looks matter. That's it. We could we, 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 we could do this. Can you hold a conversation? Like, are you interesting? Right. That was what you asked what the guy, cause you, and if you think that dynamic together just made good television where a guy could, you know, a guy could keep the conversation going. He's entertaining. You like him and the girl. And the, you know, at the end of the day, like hopefully they hook up, like that's a win. But like, that was, that's what we were looking for. So if you meet a cool guy, dude, you can get on that show. If you're, but if you're a guy, you can't have a car, like you can't have a conversation. There's no way you could be the best looking guy in the world. There's no way you're getting on the show. If you can't, if you can't drive a conversation. It seems like every time I watch that show, you know, at the end, they're like talking about whether or not you want to see each other again. And the guy was always like, Oh hell yeah. I definitely want to hang out with her again. And the girls are like, well, you know, like we had a pretty good time and I'm going to think about it and we'll see how I feel tomorrow. Like, Oh, for sure. It was, it was just kind of funny to watch. 
the dynamic at the end of the episodes every time because it's always like the guy's like i can't believe i just went on a blind date with this girl i can't wait to tell all my bros about this and the girl's like yeah i mean it was okay like we had some we had some dis- decent conversation i just wonder if there were any cases of like the dude just getting hammered and completely embarrassing himself like while all this shit is just happening, there's cameras everywhere and there's like other people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that was pretty much it, right? I mean, they went out, they went and did something, then they went and got drinks, right? And then you saw if they went home together or not. So yeah, pretty funny. I've always thought that, uh, and Tim, I think we've talked about this, that I've always thought press trips for travel writers, photographers, and influencers, that was just such a good premise for a reality show. Like you have like 10 strangers who work in like kind of a bizarre industry on an island together for like five days. They don't know each other. They're there. Everything's free. They're in like a nice luxury hotel. And you got different personnel. Like writers are so different from influencers, but they're all kind of there for a similar goal to experience destination. They got five days and just, just film it and see what happens. Like the press trips are wild. And no, I, I just, I feel like that would be such an interesting look inside that industry that no one really knows about. But every time I'm on one of these things, I'm like, someone, someone should film this. Dude, that is a constant prize that's not a show. You got to go pitch that. And the thing about a press trip is like the itinerary is already set. So you already know you're going to be in a city or an island or wherever you are. You're going to be seeing all of the best things that people want to see. So like the viewers not only are going to get to watch the drama of like three journalists and two photographers and one you know, high maintenance influencer driving around in a van for a week. They're also going to get to see all of these iconic tourist spots and restaurants along the way. It's kind of a win-win. There's all I can see. And, and there's another layer to it in the sense of like, everyone thinks they're like a, you know, a journalist these days, right. With Instagram and stuff. So like, like there's so many levels of that show that I think is a great idea. You need to go pitch that. Yeah. Evan, where's, where's your proposal, Evan? This is your guy. Well, yeah, I'll draw something up for you if you want. Yeah, it's a good idea. That's a really good idea. All right. Well, we have uh, a segment now called Listener Question where we have a listener submit a question that's generally pretty on topic. And this one is incredibly on topic for you. It's nice and quick. This question is from Jesse from Nebraska. She says, I'm considering moving to LA and I have one blunt question. Is it played out or is there still opportunity for people to just show up and work hard? Oh, for sure. I think like LA is like the, it's the city to do it in. I mean, I, by the way, I think there's, there, there's a lot of places to go now, but like, no, I don't think it's LA's played out. I mean, LA, I mean, I think there's so much opportunity there. It's insane. You know, I do think we live in a time when you don't need to be in LA, right. Where I think when I was going 20 years ago, I, you know, I was lucky in Jacksonville, Florida, but even there, I knew I was hitting a ceiling and I knew if I wanted to get to the next level of my business, I had to just get out into LA. I think now if you see things, I I think you, you can kind of make yourself anywhere. Now, I think we all are realizing that in many capacities. So I think you don't have to make the move and LA is an expensive town. So there's all these other variables that you should, you know, take a look at and consider. But I think LA is a, I think if you're even thinking about it, and when this isn't, this isn't just LA, this is like, you could be thinking about, you know, Rio de Janeiro, wherever it is. If you're thinking about it, it's like, go for it. You always can go home. You can always change course. Right. And, and I think, especially, and if you're young, I think like the first like five years, I mean, I bounced around so much. Like I was just like anyone, you know, I was just open for any opportunity. I think that's kind of the, 
I, I did it just naturally wasn't thinking about. It. But as I look back, I think that's the right way to look at it. You know, it's like, where, where's the opportunity? Where do I got to go? And we'll, we'll, you know, I think you'll reap rewards in that. I think that's true. And I, I, I think it's, it's true also what you were saying about not necessarily having to be there all the time. Like I remember I was worked at a music magazine before I was at Matador and one of my colleagues used to always say the stat over and over. He's like, you know, there are 80,000 active bands in LA. Start your band somewhere else. And and it always kind of resonated with me. But but at the same time, it's like there's 80,000 bands there because that's where the scene is. Like that's where yeah, that's yeah. where all that's where the red hot chili peppers are from. That's where all these bands are from. You know, they're they're not coming out of Waco, Texas, you know. But Tim, since your band was in Colorado, you could say with confidence that your band was in easily the top 100 ska bands in the entire state. You couldn't say that in Cali. And I got to tell you, and I had like a lot of nice things going for me, right? I'd won the Amazing Race, had some money in my pocket. Like I had a lot of things going for me. And I'll say it wasn't easy. It was not easy. And, and and my little sister, you know, and she's just like in the last five years kind of taken off. She does, she's a, a filmmaker and she was an actress at the beginning. But the stories that she went through were like, I mean, she, it, it's depending on the scenario you're in, it's just, it's typically not an easy journey. But like, I think we all know, like nothing in life that's worth getting is going to be easy. It's like so cliche to say that, but especially if the young people out there, it's like nothing's going to be handed. It just says life just doesn't work that way. So, you know, you're going to hear, like I always say, like people, people hear, um, and when I talk, when I talk at college, I say this a lot. It's like, people see the yeses I got in life. That's just what you see. I'm telling you, there's like a bazillion no's on a bazillion projects. 99.9% .9 of the things I worked on or I thought were awesome are never see the light of day. But you, most of it, it's like you see like the 1% and that's what you fight for because that 1% is so awesome. You know, this is guy, uh, oh man, I'm just going to kill me. I've, I've lost his name. But anyway, a buddy of mine, he, he's a lion trainer, right? And like works with like, not like in, in like a lion. Um, I mean, he works with like in a good way, right? With like lions and tigers and all that kind of stuff in nature. And, it, and we were doing, we were talking one day and he said something that was like so many parallels between what I do. And like, it was just passion for work. And he would say, he goes, you know, 99% of the time, people always like see pictures of me, like, you know, like feeding a tiger or whatever. Right. Most of the time I'm, I'm like cleaning up literally shit. Like that's my job is to like clean up shit, but I do it for that 5% of the time that I wake up to like the sounds of like lions roaring and that cat knows me or whatever it is. Right. And I think that in anything, whether it's a band, especially in the arts, right. It's a band they're hosting you're producing, whatever it is, when you have a passion for something, it's like, it's small. I mean, most of the time I'm not trekking around in Thailand shooting. Most of the time I'm putting together decks and I'm pitching and I'm trying to put money together and all these other things that are happening of the business. And I do it for that because that high is so awesome. That's, that's a great quote, man. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Alex. It's been great catching up. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. Good to see you guys. Come to LA. Let's have a drink soon. All right, it's hot takes time. Tim, you ready? I'm ready. All right, hot take one is organic food bullshit. And I know what you're going to say to this, but I mean everything associated with organic food, the price, the culture, all of that. I understand that eating organic has its benefits, but is the organic culture bullshit?
some of the cultural aspects of it are certainly bullshit, but the price is not. The thing so the thing about why organic food is expensive, organic food actually costs what food should cost. The reason why other stuff is so cheap is because it's subsidized by the government and because the farmers aren't actually making money off of the food they're producing. They're making money by producing a crap load of food and getting subsidized for that food. So that's the only reason why you can buy a $1 banana or whatever. But that $1 banana isn't like genetically mutated, right? It's like a safe banana to eat. According to the FDA, yeah. I mean, sure, it's safe, but it could be better. General farming practices, uh, best practice is to rotate your crops so that you're planting different things on a plot of land each year so that different nutrients are going in and out of the soil and keeping it rejuvenated. Whereas if you just plant corn over and over and over and over and over again, that corn drains the nutrients out of that soil over time. So see, I always thought rotating your crops was like a socialization technique so that they don't get bored and they can interact with like other crops that they don't normally get to interact with. Kind of like in school, when the teacher changes your seat around every few months, you get to meet different kids. That's what I always thought crop rotation was. But. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an added perk, you know, the social perks of plants, they can also benefit from that. <laughs> Another question. My mom always said, if you sing to plants, they grow faster. Is that, can you, can you confirm Tim? I can, I cannot confirm. <laughs> okay. I, but I, 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 I'll caveat that by saying that my growing experience is, is next to nil. It's just no one saying to you, Tim. Right. But everything I know about plants, I know from my wife <laughs> okay. uh, and her, her seed company. So, you know, my, my knowledge is secondhand knowledge that I'm passing on to you. And that's fine. I'll have thirdhand knowledge and I can pass it on. That'll become fourthhand knowledge. And this is how we get, this is why we live in a, a post-truth, post-fact society. So here we are at the, at the root of it. Yeah. All right. Next one. Uh, <laughs> if you could choose one of these two things, which would you choose? You could either have a cold for the rest of your life like just have sore throat, stuffy nose, like just a cold, real bad cold for the rest of your life or live in a lockdown like we currently are for the rest of your life. I mean, like like lockdown like I am in Palisade where I can still go out and hike and bike and ski every day. Yeah, you, you can hike. You can't, you can't go into, say there's no restaurant. You can't go into a restaurant. You can't go into a bar. You can't travel. You can't really like gather in large groups. You can't go to concerts. You can't. You can leave your house, obviously. You can go and hike and bike and stuff, but the social aspect. So you're healthy. You're healthy. You know, you never get a cold again. You're healthy as can be for your entire life, but you are in a virtual lockdown. I would say that I, I'm pretty good, honestly, right now. Like I want to travel and I want to do all these things, but like I have a house and work and my wife and I go recreate outdoors all the time. So to be honest, yeah, like I would rather keep doing this than feel like shit all the time. Yeah, I could see that. I, I My answer would be the opposite, but I would be assuming that I would get used to the cold after like a year or so. And that would just, I would, it would affect me less. And just having the freedom to live my normal life would be preferable because I feel like when you have a cold, if it lasts for like two weeks or something, the first two days or so you have it, you're like, oh, fuck, like this is the worst. It, your body's not used to it really. You're kind of like, you're, you're slogging through life. And then by like day seven or eight, you're kind of used to it. Your body's like, this is just how it is now. Like I have this cough. I have this stuffy nose. You learn to live with it and you just get used to it. Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of goes down to 
whether or not you can sleep well with this cold, because if you can sleep well, then, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad, but I, I don't operate well when I, when I don't sleep well for like multiple nights in a row. Unmarried. Would you take the lockdown? Same situation. Yeah. If I was like 22 and single and, you know, making crap for money and, uh, basing my life around my social interactions, I would definitely choose the opposite one. No, no, no. What if you were 30, whatever you are, exact same situation, same job, same age, everything's the same, but you're single. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. Maybe I would choose the opposite. Okay. Just to try and zero in on the, uh, the deciding factor for you. And last question, are donuts a breakfast food or are they a dessert? I would say that they're a breakfast food. Uh, and I don't really do dessert much, you know? So I, if I'm going to eat a donut, it's probably going to be in the morning. Are you not a dessert guy because you don't like dessert, the food item, or because you don't like, you don't like to eat again post entree? Is it a sequence of events issue or is it the food issue? It's a couple of things. So first of all, it's, I kind of have built my diet around, (laughs) around, my priorities. Okay. And like, so dessert is generally not healthy, but also not healthy is like bread and crackers and carbs. And I eat a lot of fucking crackers and stuff. So I personally feel like I have to choose one or the other. So I choose the carbs over the dessert most of the time, you know, not like I'm eating a bunch of white bread or whatever, but like I eat Triscuits by the box and I'm not going to stop doing that. Oh man. It's nothing like eating a eating a loaf of Wonder Bread. Do they even make Wonder Bread anymore? My mom would never in a million years buy a loaf of Wonder Bread. So that's fine. It's a little beside the point of the question though, which is, are donuts a dessert or a breakfast? And here's my thing. Most foods in the donut flavor and nutritional profile are considered desserts, but not donuts. If you came down to a hotel breakfast to find the entire breakfast was just a big piece of cheesecake sitting on your plate you'd be really confused. You'd be like, this isn't breakfast. But if it was a donut sitting on your plate, big, big donut, you wouldn't be. Why is that? Donuts have somehow managed to transcend barriers. They've broken the glass ceiling. Why is a donut acceptable breakfast food, but the cheesecake is not? My opinion is donuts are like a postscript to breakfast. I'm not sure that I'm ready to admit that a single donut itself can qualify as a breakfast, but if you have some eggs, toast, bacon, sausage, cereal, whatever it is, and then a donut, that's okay. So to me, a donut is like the encore. It's the credits to the movie, not the movie itself. Well, what about all of the other uh, breakfast pastry- pastries like croissants and danishes and Same like thing. tarts? Like These things are just as sweet and fatty and unhealthy as donuts, and people eat them for breakfast all the time. I, w- I wouldn't, and I, same thing, I would never just eat a croissant or no croissant's different, but like a Danish, I wouldn't just eat a Danish and say that's breakfast. I would eat some eggs and then I have a Danish and then be like, Oh cool. I had breakfast with like a little mini dessert type thing after. Well, what about a bagel and cream cheese? Because that's just as sweet and just as bread. That's absolutely not just as sweet. What are you talking about? Like a plain bagel or everything bagel? No, like a a bagel with cream cheese is a lot of carbs. It might not be good for you, but I'm not talking health wise. I'm talking food group wise, like sweet wise, a bagel is not considered a dessert. I don't think. No, I get it. I get it. And I think I generally agree. I can tell by your smirk. You don't tell you can't see where I'm coming from on this at all. I don't know. I don't think of donuts as dessert. I guess I'm just 
brainwashed by society to think of if it's if I'm going to eat a donut, it's going to be in the morning. I'm not going to have a donut at eight o'clock at night. Answer me this. What do you feel about coffee cake? I love coffee cake. I, same thing, though. I wouldn't have it for just my breakfast. I would have something else, even if it's a bagel, even if it's unhealthy. It's not a health thing. Bagel, eggs, cereal, doesn't matter. And then have a side of coffee cake. It's a side. Those are things are side dishes. No, I mean, I agree. I, I, I will say that it's a very rare day that I have only a donut for breakfast. Yeah, well, to close, there's no judgment here. I have woken up in the morning, grabbed a leftover slice of Domino's pizza out of the fridge and drizzled Domino's Cinestick sauce on it. And that has been my breakfast, so. Okay, well, you're on the hot seat now. And so the first thing here, I'm going to read something to you and then we're going to discuss it. This is a quote that I got and this is it. I'm quoting now. I am contacting you to say hello and to ask you a very important favor. I have sent you a link and we need you to please fill out this form as soon as possible as it's urgent. It will only take a few minutes. We appreciate your prompt answer. End quote. So the question is, does that sound like spam? The answer is yes, Tim. I give the Saudi prince the, the, ba- the bailout money he needs every single time. The, the Nigerian kidnapping victim or whatever it is. I Yeah, 100%. I've never seen, I've never seen the bank account money that they always promise to wire me, but... All the time. I fill out the survey. I send them my bank account number. I Everything. doesn't matter. Uh, what was the question? Does it sound like spam? It doesn't sound like spam. Uh, it doesn't sound, no, it doesn't sound like spam, but it sounds... I mean, it depends how you define spam. It sounds like a, a mass email that they send to like a bunch of people, but I don't think it's like a phishing email necessarily where they're going to like mine my information. Well, so I got this and I my first inclination was, of course, that it was spam. And then I started thinking, why do I assume that this is spam? Is it because... It's clearly not written by a native English speaker, or is it because they're asking me for something without exactly telling me what they want? Why am I so trained to immediately not want to do what these people want me to do? Yeah, you're right. That is an instinct. I mean, it's the same reason we don't answer calls from unknown numbers. But I mean, like back in 1996, there was no such thing as an unknown number. There's no like caller ID. So you had to pick up the phone all the time. Yeah. That, that was actually my next question is, do you answer a phone number if you don't know who it is? These days, no, because I've been getting a lot of healthcare spam, but I used to, yeah. I have an incredible fear of missing out, Tim. You know that. And yes, that does extend to missed phone calls. I, you never know. You never know who could be calling. I mean, maybe I won a free trip to Thailand from that sweepstakes I mindlessly entered three months ago. Maybe that Nigerian hostage is calling to make sure I got the money he wired me. You never know. I've been on a years long thing where I absolutely will not answer the phone if I don't know who it is, unless I'm specifically expecting a phone call from somebody in that area code. Because in reality, who's going to be calling you? Who who that you don't know is just going to call you out of the blue with good news? That's what I'm saying. Like it, It's probably somebody you don't want to talk to. And that's why they're not announcing to you that they're going to call you beforehand. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's going to do it for rap- rapid fire. This just time. one question? Well, there was two, but you led into my second one <laughs> before before I was able to ask it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the No Blackout Dates podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to our friend Alex Boylan for coming on and breaking down the life of the reality TV stud. We will see you next week. But in the meantime, please head over to Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think about eating donuts, only donuts for breakfast. I think this might be our most controversial hot take yet, so don't hold back. We'll catch you next week.